Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi, my name's Don Birch. Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Show hosted by Jonathan Bowman Perks. Let me just tell you a little about me. I've spent my year in strategic comms roles. I've worked for Green Flag, for Direct Line, for Asda for many years. I managed the horse meat crisis as my last ever PR gig, which I can tell you all about. Um, since then, I've gone freelance. I've been a consultant. I've helped lots of different brands, mainly consumer, super dries, G4S actually in the prisons world. And I've been a, I guess, a confidant and a coach to some extent to senior leaders in comms roles uh, ever since leaving Asda. And, um, and of late, actually, I've been getting to know the world of legal tech, working with lawyers, which has been interesting in itself. And, uh, and most recently, I'm about to move into the agri-tech world. And I've also got an interest in medtech. So I've kind of gone full, full circle, really, from being a comms professional to now a techie. So who knew? Yeah, well, Dom, brilliant. And it's lovely to have you in the series. When we got back in touch from our days coaching together six years ago, when I was lucky enough to work with you in Asda, I just thought Dom's got a, you know, lots of interesting cutting edge thoughts on PR, com, social media. You even got me started on the whole journey. So I, I owe you a thanks for that. And now I'm apparently that the podcast is in the top 2% in the world of, and there's 2 million of them in the world. So it doesn't make it that special. I mean, the top 2%, but thank you. Uh, you got me going along with a few other friends on the way and my wife's encouragement. Um, let's go back to the early days of Don Birch, you know, growing up, because um, the whole series is about you as an inspiring leader. I do find you very inspiring. Who was it that influenced you and, and what events happened in your young life that really shaped the way you approached the world? I think, yeah, I mean, when I think back to school, school was a fun time. I wasn't, you know, overly academic. I think I was pretty good at most things. I quite like my sport. I quite like my drama. I remember there was a pivotal moment when I was in my GCSEs and I remember telling my mum, I don't want to do A-levels. I don't want to go to university. And my mum used that classic psychological trick of going, that's fine, dear. My dad, who was a professor of chemistry, academic, my brother who's older than me had done chemistry, physics and double maths, you know, and was off to university. So the idea that I wasn't going to do A-levels was kind of like, you know, red rag to a bull. And I think she just understood how to manage me, how to listen to me, how to put up with what I was saying. I needed to be heard. And then, of course, I came around to the idea that I would do A-levels, but I wanted to do the ones that I wanted to do. And I ended up doing what I thought were the dossiest A-levels. So I did sociology, I did drama, which was theatre studies, and I did art. And I remember my Fridays, my, famously my Fridays, were a free double period, double period of art, double free period, double free period. And I thought, you know, I've gone to heaven, really. Now, what I actually discovered through doing sociology particularly was the ability to make an argument, the ability to consider, you know, a left-hand side and a right-hand side and arrive somewhere in the middle. And once I worked out the formula, then I started to really enjoy this idea of, politics or social movement or things that happened in history. 
And on the art side, I got to just be creative. I was making things out of clay and I was having fun. And theatre studies was really just English literature, but you got to do a bit of practical. So it was really interesting that I kind of found my way through being allowed some freedom. And actually then I was quite academically, you know, I was, I was able to succeed through my A-levels. And then choosing university again became one of those, I left it to the last minute. I wasn't really too sure. I had to fill in the form and we had to go to assembly. And I was thumbing through a book in the A-level common room and I stumbled onto public relations and I didn't really know what that was. And it, but it sounded interesting because the syllabus at Leeds Metropolitan, the old poly, was creative writing, event management, broadcast. And I thought, well, these are things that sound exciting. And the jobs that were on the back of it were things like a communications officer in the army working for government working in an agency and so that sense of vocational training but also not being penned into a boring office job because I think at the time the idea of being in an office was just like you know it was like I had an allergic reaction so mm. so I think so I think back to those days of being given a little bit of freedom, being allowed to follow the things that I was passionate about and so that I could succeed on my own terms. And then, you know, I guess by hook or by crook, I ended up going to university and ended up <laughs> getting a degree and I ended up doing the things that probably my dad really wanted me to do anyway, but I did them because it was my choice. I chose. <laughs> yeah, no, interesting how parents, um, some get it right, some get it desperately wrong. And uh, I had an interesting chat uh, with a guy called Dawid, who's going to be on the series. And he goes into prisons and uh, goes to some of the hardest prisons. And uh, uh, because his mother was uh, white and his father was Ghanaian, he can relate to nearly anybody. Uh, and he finds that the ones, the one thing they all talk about when they do their art and their drama, they, they, they do finding their voice is that um, they all talk about the fact they didn't know their father. And they reckon that their, their spree of crime was because they never knew their father. Uh, very interesting one. Parents have uh, a, you know, a good force, and if not there, an absentee, it's a bad one. Um, let's talk about, um, during your life, highs and lows, Don. So, so moment that, that was perhaps the proudest moment, happiest moment for you, what, what was it? And how did that, what did that teach you? And then, and then a dark moment, personal life or, or work, and, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, I think, I think going to university was one of those interesting experiences where um, I wanted to go far away from home. My brother had been to university in Sheffield. I'd visited him when I was a bit younger, and I just thought, wow, this is amazing. People are friendly. It costs 20p to get on a bus, and you can buy a pint of beer for 50p. So I had this idea that I wanted to go a bit away from where I'd grown up in Reading, and I remember being at university and it just being a bit strange and kind of finding your feet and, and wanting to express yourself for being who you are and all those things. Um, and I think so the proudest moment I had, I think, is actually getting a first in my dissertation. It felt like the first time I'd really excelled at a piece of work that I was proud of. I put my heart and soul into and that it meant something to me. And it was about at the time it was about cause related marketing and how organisations were beginning to shift from doing kind of on the edge, periphery kind of charitable work. So Tesco computers for schools. Um, I think the uh, Andrex toilet tissue were giving money to guide dogs for the blind because they shared a Labrador puppy in common, you know, that kind of stuff. 
Um, and I and I learned a lot about, you know, it was a 15,000 word report. It was something big and meaningful. And I applied myself to that in the same way that you would if you're in work. And because it was final year and we'd had a sandwich year, I'd actually got used to being at work. And interestingly, the darkest moment or the most hardest point was I had a you know career, uh, sorry, a sandwich year in London. And on day two of my um, secondment for this European marketing department within a software company, you know, the US boss flew in and said, ah, you're the intern. Sorry about that. We're closing the office. So I was in London, in Leytonstone, living in a house with a couple of other people on my own without a job. And I couldn't go back to uni for a year. And it was just one of those, what do you do? And you, I had to go and find work. I had to go into office angels and I had to go and, you know, find a temporary job. But it did teach me an awful lot. So I ended up in an accountancy department doing, you know, boring admin work. But I was inquisitive and I was curious. And I said, do you have a communications team? And it was a, a company called Building Design Partnership. They're like a multi disciplinary architect firm, I suppose. And they said, sure, sure, go and meet the team. We'll go and introduce you. And I went and met them. And I probably did a bit of a, you know, down on my heel kind of story. And I was in London, I'd come to do this PR course. And as it happened, by being incurious in and being a bit inquisitive, they had an opening. The person who managed the slide desk of you remember, 35 millimeter slides, that's how I used to do presentations and pitches. <laughs> the person who managed the slide desk was going on maternity leave and they could afford to pay me the same amount as I was earning in the finance team. Would I like to come and get the experience? And it ended up being, you know, a fully fledged work experience. It counted towards my degree. The tutor came down and I managed to lend my hand to doing internal comms. I managed to go and do some photography, but I had to do the really boring grunt work of pulling together these slide decks for, for people to pitch. So, and I learned about politics inside an organization. I learned about, I watched leadership, both good and bad. I saw the dynamics when the main leader was away and the atmosphere changed and you saw how people behave differently, not in her shadow. Um, and then I noticed how people changed when she came back and they went back into their shells. And I just sort of observed this as a kind of 20 year old thinking, this is strange. Why do people behave like this? Um, so I think that was, you know, being in Lanestone on my own, pre-social media with no money, thinking what the hell am I going to do for this year um, was really, really tough. I would say I was on, you know, it was depressing. It was really low, um, but it taught me a lot. And I think I dug down and found resilience there that probably I didn't realize I had. Yeah, brilliant. And and Dom, very eloquent. I'm really enjoying the, the stories you're telling and the way it is and also relating to them. So I gave my daughter some work experience at one of the big, big famous banks that I was working with. And she also saw the CEO come into the room and how everybody changed. And when she left again, they changed again. And, and she learned about that. And and. She learned a lot from it at a very early age about emotional and social intelligence. So thinking about she was, you know, uh, 16 at the time, if you went back and you met your 16 year old Don Birch, um, what bit of wisdom, uh, now you're in your mid forties, what bit of wisdom would you give to yourself having, having cut your teeth, made mistakes, had successes? What would you say, hey, look, this is what matters, but don't worry about that. What, what would be your advice? You know, I think I would say fake it to make it. I think I would say, don't worry if you haven't figured it out yet. Go for it. I think I was, 
I was desperate to be an entrepreneur. I really wanted to run my own company, but I felt like I didn't have the skills or the experience or the know-how or the network. I remember when, you know, my dad was at Reading University and I needed some work experience before I went on this public relations course in Leeds. And we managed to talk to the press office at the uni who found me, you know, half a day at the Reading Chronicle and a day at BBC Radio Berkshire. And that was the extent of our network. My dad didn't know anyone in media or PR, and that was as far as I got. But it was brilliant. It was, and I learned loads, you know, in, in back in the days when radio was little bits of tape and chalk and, you know, cutting and sellotape and all the rest of it. Um, but I felt like, how? How do you go forth into this world when you don't know anyone? Like, you don't have this old boy network to call on, or you don't have this family that are well-connected or that can place you in, you know, all that stuff. So... So I, I was desperate to kind of be successful, I think. I desperately wanted to do my own thing, but I didn't feel like I had the right. I didn't feel like I had the caliber. I didn't feel like I had the track record. And so it took me probably 10 or 15 years of working. <laughs> In fact, it probably took me till about five years ago, six years ago when you were coaching me. And, and we had that conversation about what's holding you back. You know, I'm sure we'll talk about it later. You know, are they handcuffs? holding you back? Is it really security or is it a bind? And, and it took me until my you know, late 30s, early 40s to really take the plunge. And actually you do, and then you realize anything's possible. And, yeah. and I'm in a similar place now, you know, I'm, I'm having to say to myself, and, and my, my mantra is, you know, you've got to back yourself. So I think I would say to myself, you know, back yourself. And I think I would temper that though with, you know, I think I could have, I was a bit arrogant though. And so, so, so I look back at myself and if I saw myself behaving, I'd probably go, actually, you also need a reality check. So maybe the reality is, you know, I, I trod the right path. I had this sort of slight blend of arrogance of a teenager thinking I can do anything, but I was completely green around the edges, you know? So I remember my first PR job at Green Flag and um, the lady who employed me went on maternity leave two days after I joined. And when she returned after six months, she asked me things, where's the press log? Where have you written down all of the journalists that have contacted you over the last six months? And I was thinking, well, there were scraps of paper. <laughs> They're all in the bin, you know, because she'd also told me that on the same day where I didn't know where the toilets were. So the idea that I would remember everything, you know, on day one. So I, yeah, I, I, think, I think I probably, I think there's been a self-limiting aspect to some of the things that I've done through my career where the only person preventing me from doing more was me. Yeah. And, and that probably at different times has had an impact on confidence. And I think when I've been at my best is when I've had great leaders around me or great peers or great coaches or great folks who are just able to say, actually give me what I need, the nourishment I need in order to overcome those stumbles and really go for it. And I think as you get older, then you start to be able to do that yourself. You start to be able to look back and go, actually, do you know what? Over the long term, when I think back to all those junctions, all those times when I could have gone left or right or straight on, and I took the decision to go straight on, even though I was a bit nervous, actually what happened? It was, it all worked out in the end. And so I think my younger self, I would kind of, I would tell me what I needed to hear. And I think that's the thing. It's not just saying, oh, it will be fine. I think I would find the things in me that gave, give me confidence, that reassure me, 
that give me energy, that give me that drive and desire. And that is different. I'm different to you to, to the next person. So um, I think that would be that would be my advice. Yeah. And do you have any children or family of your own or just you and your own? Uh, wife and two children and a rescue dog. Okay. <laughs> rescue dog. Great. Well, I've got Archie at the back having a sleep. He's a, a working cocker spaniel behind me. Um, but there he is. I'm gonna oh, there is. You can see him sleeping out. But um, how old are the kids? So Amelie's 14, Orla's 12. So they're both now in secondary Emily. school yeah. and, and beginning to find their voice. Um, yeah. Well, well, this is the interesting one. Again, this fascinating guy, DeWitt. And uh, he said his grandfather said to him a little poem that he would read to him. He'd written it out that, that I am a human dynamo. I can achieve anything. And in it, they'd always say it together. And it became, he, it, there's this whole thing about expectation theory. And whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. And the tests that were done in various school where they said, this group is all the high achievers and you've been chosen because you're the top three teachers. And of course they weren't, they were picked at random and the kids were picked at random, but they all believed they were. And they were told not to tell anybody else because it was special and it appeared to be streaming and unfair. And they all achieved incredible results because they thought they were. And even the ones who were who were not normally as academically able, they believed they'd get on with it anyway and they encouraged them and again. And I think this, this whole thing about, I'm a human dynamo, I can achieve anything. It, it's, you've got to be careful not to do the, um, the sort of uh, seagull parents who are constantly cosseting and giving them a prize for coming last and all this kind of stuff. But, but I think that sort of self-belief is important. Let's go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass. We talked about this some, some time ago. Um, about uh, what makes inspiring leaders and a high performance. And we'll begin with MQ, the moral question, that the sort of true north. What, what, what's, if there were three foundational values that's really shaped you, Dom, and which you won't compromise over, what would your three be? It's, it's an interesting question. It's one that I ponder regularly when I feel a sense of betrayal or a sense that I've been let down. So I have a view of the world that I trust people. I implicitly believe that people are good, but I'm not naive enough to think that that always plays out. So occasionally I get burnt and occasionally I find out that people aren't true to their word or they, they don't turn out to be the kind of people who share my values. And so, and that I find difficult sometimes, um, but I'm accepting of it. And I would rather tread through life with a glass half full, assuming the best of people, than assuming that people are out to get me or that they're not true to their words. So I think this, a sense of honesty mm. and a sense of fairness and a sense of humanity are really, really, really important to me. Um, you know, having respect for one another, saying thank you, actually, being absolutely fundamental to me thanking somebody and even to the point where and I'm I'm guilty of it where somebody pays me a compliment and it's one I've heard before that it's very easy for me to insult their compliment by saying you're dismissing it and actually starting to change that to going how do you think that person feels and they've mustered up the strength if you like they've had the confidence to actually tell you something that they appreciate about you or they find valuable or they aspire to be more like. And your instinct was to dismiss it and knock it down. 
Yeah. I think, you know, those, that, that sort of value set for me is really important. And, and unfortunately, the thing I have to manage through life is when people overstep the mark is not to, not to overreact to that and go, well, I need to, you know, sometimes you just need to understand that someone's behavior is also coming from a place. So, you know, someone said to me recently, it's a lawyer that used to be at Asda, funnily enough, and she was giving me some coaching. <laughs> and, and I was asking, I think I know who you mean. What was your best piece of advice? And she said to me, always be nice to people because you just don't know where they've come from when they entered the room that day. Yes. Yeah. So you can always choose to be nice. Great. And I love that. Great. I love that. And I think that's, you know, I thought for me, it's just, it's simple, but it's really, really powerful. Um, and, and it's hard, you know, it's, all, it's always hard, isn't it? In the heat of a moment or when you're feeling stressed or you're feeling that somebody's not appreciating you or they don't value what you do. Um, so I think those, those values to me are really, really important. And, and it's, it's the ones I live by. And if others choose not to live by them, that's fine. And we move on. Yeah, uh, great. And I couldn't agree more. There's been a huge amount of research into appreciation. And if you're the three S's, specific, sincere and succinct, and you remember when we worked together, we'd always end a session with appreciating one quality about each other. Uh, and it's hugely affirming if you know it's not like, oh, Mr. Grace, in are you being served? You're all doing very well. Thank you, Mr. Grace. Doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but actually something specific, sincere and succinct is really powerful. And people's performance goes up. There's the 21 day challenge. Try this with your tech uh, clients. But um, uh, you give them the 21 day challenge, the first two minutes of the day, they must from their phone or their computer, send a note of appreciation or gratitude to somebody else, customer, client, anywhere, colleague, for 21 days. For 21 days, they, the very first activity they do is send a note of gratitude or appreciation. And they found over the research that their performance goes up. They actually make more money. The whole organization makes more money. Uh, it's just, it's this attitude lighting up the prefrontal cortex. It works so well. Glad we, we, uh, we definitely come from the same place on that one, Tom. Not that uh, everywhere needs to come from the same place. I always find it interesting. There's that old saying that imagine that everybody in the world is enlightened except you. <laughs> and then so you've got something to learn from everybody. And that, that gives you a different attitude where it shows up differently. Let's go on to meaning and purpose, PQ, the, the, the second of the eight. What gives you your dharma, your calling? Why, why do you do what you do, Dom? There's a, there's a golden thread running through the kind of things you do. But, but uh, Mark Twain said the two most important days in your life, the day you were born and the day you found out why. So why were you born, Dom? What, what are you here to do? So I, I count my lucky stars that 10 years ago, I had the privilege of having a career break. And I've been thinking about it quite a lot because it's the symmetry of 10 years on. You know? And that career break gave me the opportunity to put my foot on the ball figuratively at Asda and go, what do I want? And the way I thought about it was, we're all on this conveyor belt, or we're all on the journey to ultimately, we'll, we'll leave this place at some point. And without being morbid, when you get to that point of looking back, you finish your career, and you're looking back and you're going, what did I achieve? And I started to reimagine that actually, rather than basing my achievement on collecting badges of honour, I should think about what were the experiences I had along the way? And so why don't you take a couple of detours? And so my career break of six months was a really self-indulgent, to some extent, you know, it was, a, it was a detour. It allowed me to work from home. It allowed me to start to write a book. It allowed me to get to know my kids better when they were two and four. 
we went traveling for a month in South Africa against everyone's better judgment. You'll be carjacked. It's dangerous. What are you doing taking children to a foreign country? You know? And it was fine. And we had great fun. I volunteered. I ended up volunteering at a community radio station where I end up now. I'm chairing the community radio station. I made friends, new friends outside of work and friends that had been lost from university days or school days and becoming parents. You kind of, you know, your social circles change and they shrink actually to some extent. So I made new friends and I, and I started to realize that people valued Dom for how I think, not the fact that I happen to be a PR man at Asda. And I think, whereas I'd got into a position of thinking, I'm now typecast. What I do is PR and I do PR for a supermarket. So now I have to go to Morrison's or Tesco or Summerfield. If I want to do anything else, I need to go to another supermarket. And I remember really clearly being in a meeting with West Yorkshire Fire Service and police and some older charity groups. And they were talking about loneliness and they were talking about winter and they were talking about how do we make sure that people who are living on their own aren't isolated and, and you know they could be in despair. And this meeting was going on and on and there was lots of talking and not a lot happening. And I was sitting on my hands because I thought, what do I know? I'm, you know, I'm PR guy from Asda and I'm just volunteering for this older people's group. And eventually I sort of had to poke up because it was obvious to me. <laughs> and it was interesting just as I began to spoke that the room gravitated towards me and people thought, oh, that's an interesting perspective. We hadn't thought about that. And it was really interesting to me and it enabled me to get back to Asda with a completely different perspective that what do I want in Asda while I'm here? What do I want to achieve? Where am I at my best? Mm. How can I blend me and my, you know, at my best? Where am I in my element? How do I take the aspects of me and my element and make them valuable to you? And actually I came back then and, I remember speaking to Judith McKenna, who's now mm -hmm. you know, a senior at Walmart, and she was the chief finance officer at the time. And I had to speak to Rick Bendel, who was the marketing director. And I more or less had to come back in and pitch me back into the organization. And that dynamic shift came about from being able to move myself out of a very, very busy life and hectic world. And I think I left Asda for that career break and I gave myself permission to not necessarily return. Yeah. And as it happened, I returned because I wanted to return and I wanted to go back and I wanted to do stuff and I wanted to drive forward. Um, but that was a really interesting moment. And I, and I still think I look back on that and I think that was the most important decision I've taken in my life, actually. Yeah. Yeah. In my yeah. life, because it enabled me to do a lot of great thinking. I, I remember you discussing doing it and I'm really proud of, what you've done and what you've achieved and I admire you for it and and that was something that would also help your health which is the next element the third your health um, your mental and physical health and well-being which in many leadership models it's missing people don't talk about health and they oh oh why is everybody so ill and why are they going off sick and why are they looking depressed and why is the engagement levels down um so we're finding this such an important area what's your personal experience about keeping your mental and physical health and well-being what tips would you give to those people who are watching and listening funny enough i think that when we had our sessions together and there were little things i remember really clearly like you saying to me that you don't have caffeine after a certain point in the day and you asked me did i want a mint tea or something that you're eating some pulses and things for lunch and all the rest of it 
our first session, I'd just been presenting at a PR event. They were running late. I was, it was a high octane event. I was on performance mode and I was showing off and wowing this audience of PR people about what I knew about social media. I dashed across town to come to your, you know, to your office and, and your apartment. And we sat down and I walked in the room and you plugged me into this monitor and I started and my heart was racing and I was still in performance mode, but also I wanted to prove to you that I was worthy of your coaching, right? And I think over that year that we spent time together and I began to relax and I began to realize that actually I was highly strung at Asda, as was everybody. And we all had these kind of gray faces. We looked unwell, we looked stressed, but because we were all amongst one another, we didn't recognize it. When I left Asda, I remember, or in fact, before I left Asda, there were people who had left just before me and we met them at a bar in, in around the corner from Asda House and the three of them had left and three of us hadn't. And the three who left all had suntans and they all had relaxed expressions. Their shoulders were a bit lower and they were talking in a kind of just a different style. It's still the same three people we've known, but they were talking in a very kind of normal way. And the three who hadn't were still talking in jargon and couldn't stop help looking at the Blackberry or the iPhone or whatever. And I looked at my colleagues and I looked at the ones who had been made redundant or had chosen to go or whatever. And I thought, who's the fool here? Who's the bigger fool here? Mm. And so I'm very, very cognizant now of in the morning, I will go for a, a work walk and I do it between nine and 10. And I signify, I sort of signpost of light to people that I'm working with. By all means, you can ring me. I'm not doing a team and I'm not doing Zoom between nine and 10 because that's when I go for my work walk. And it's one of those things, I say it out loud to myself to justify it to myself, but I also signal it to others mm. because I want them to know that this isn't off the clock. This isn't John taking an hour off in the morning. This is me thinking, this is me walking, this is me reflecting. And sometimes I will write a note, maybe even look at an email. Sometimes I'll ring somebody up. But actually, I am valuing that hour of the day of exercise, being outside, and allowing my brain to think in a way that I wouldn't be effective if I was sat at my desk. And then, of course, I come back and then I'm far more effective. <clears throat> but it's taken discipline and thought to do it. Um, and I think just in very practical senses, as you get older, you start to reassess your relationship with how often you're drinking and how regularly, um, how, what, what are you eating and when. Um, so, I, so, I'm, I'm, so I wouldn't say I'm sort of um, obsessive about health, but I do recognize that even those small things that I can put in place and make habitual are really beneficial. And I notice when I'm not doing them. I think the thing about mental well-being is when you just about have everything in tune, of course you don't notice it. When things start to go out of tune and it starts to notice and it starts to impact you and you start you know, affecting your sleep or your mood or your relationships, I then look back and go, well, what's missing? What are the things I've got out of the habit of doing again? Mm. I've been inside too long or yeah. I'm not eating well. Uh, and I'm so delighted that you're doing that, Dom. So... I've got into a ritual of what we call bookends, uh, PM bookends, AM bookends. And, and my mental health about a year ago suffered quite badly, big, big drop in, in earnings. Um, the, the whole coaching market was 
devastated and it's going to take a long time to recover. But um, my mental health was, was badly affected. I, I took some therapy, CBT therapy, which was very good. But the thing that when I ran out of money for the CBT therapy, I thought I've got to find a different way to do this. And so I took the book Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is a, a cracking book. And he talks about habit stacking. So my morning routine up at 7.30, uh, I'll be listening to The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. So I'm listening to audio because I'm dyslexic. That's my way of learning. You know, just a, just that, that saying for the day, it might be just five minutes. I go upstairs, there's a room overlooking the fields at the back in Lincolnshire. I do, I began by doing 10 minutes of headspace. I'm now on a 365 headspace and I've done a hundred days without fail of now 20 minutes of mindfulness. Got a headset on and I just look out over the scenery and the mind wanders and I bring it back and it wanders, but, but I do that. Uh, and then I do into 30 minutes of either HIIT training or 30 minutes of Sarah Beth, who's, or whoever it might be, yoga where I watch the yoga and I do the yoga exercises because as I get to 60, I need to keep supple. And then I do the dog walk, which is half an hour. And I'm on intermittent fasting. So I've got 16 hours of fasting and then eight hours of eating. So I don't eat until 11. And I am, it's really helping me. Mental and physical health is, is as good as it could be in the circumstances of being in a pandemic and a recession. So I'm sure you're picking up some of those things, but it's nice to hear that you've got your, your own bit. And I love having walking meetings with people. And what I'm taking from you, Dom, is my 10 to 11 session, which are normally Zooms. I think I'm probably gonna say, meet you on the phone, call me. I'll be out with the dog. And, and, and we often do coaching uh, that way. On from health, delighted to hear that, Dom. On to health, on to uh, EQ, uh, a big area for you in the skills you've learned as a mentor, as a coach, doing comms, uh, reading people, uh, reading the room, uh, reading the reality of what's going on in the situation where it might be with the police and the other people in, in that uh, community radio station that you did. What's your tip on listening or, or, or rapport building that you'd pass on to people about EQ? You know, it's funny, I'm, and I'm trying so hard to listen with that active sense, and we talked an awful lot about it, listening not to interrupt, really listening, and then allowing somebody to go again. And, and just, you know, I'm reading Nancy Klein and refreshing myself actually on the original book and then the kind of more time to think and then the, her latest one. And the insight is the kind of same insight. What somebody is about to say is always going to be better quality than your assumption of what they're about to say. So force yourself to listen. And I tried it out the other day when I was just, you know, peer to peer coaching somebody. And I asked them the question, you know, what else, well, what else do you think? And I waited a natural pause. And then I counted to 10 under the table with my fingers. Cause I thought, just try it. And I counted to 10. And it was almost as if by magic on the 10th beat, she said to me, well, I've got half a thought. And then she must have spoken the most eloquently I've heard somebody speak for five or 10 minutes uninterrupted and really discovered and found out what it was she really thought about something. And it was a privilege to be in the room. It was a privilege to see that light bulb moment. And it taught me an important lesson that you have to have the confidence to just stop and allow other people to think 
brilliantly and you did it for me and and it was a profound part of our coaching together that I came into the room with an expectation that I had these things going on and I just needed to describe them well and you would point out what the obvious was and then off I'd go thank you very much it was transactional and what you did was you'd ask me but what do you think now and in my brain, I was going, well, I've already told you the answer. Why, why are you asking me again? And you were confident to allow the space. And in Britain, <laughs> English people find it awkward at first. It's like, I don't understand what's going on here. So I was second guessing the reason why you'd posed the question. But over time, because I started to reveal things to myself, these doink moments started to appear. And then you grow in confidence to go, this is a safe environment. So I think the thing I've learned, and even in a personal situation, not interrupting somebody and even telling people this story has been fascinating because as soon as you say to somebody, I'm reading a book at the moment and it's reminded me of the power of not interrupting somebody else's thinking. They then feel, if they're decent people, this they are empowered then not to interrupt and they're desperately like, worried then if they interrupt I'll think they're rude so in a way it happens on a micro level all the time now it's absolutely fascinating but that is I think it's just been a profound lesson that I've learned before but I've relearned recently and I've seen now the power of giving somebody else the respect of your absolute attention and giving them the ability to find the answer that they don't yet know is about to come out so I'm uh, so delighted to hear that, and particularly that you read the promise that changes everything. I won't interrupt you. And, and I even say this in my podcasts, that my podcast will be different from the others, in that I, as the speaker, will aspire to, I will let myself down sometimes, but I will aspire not to interrupt you, as long as you are respectful equally and you don't go into monologue for an hour. <laughs> and and, and it, it makes it a very different conversation and it's a different style to the usual tv broadcaster who cuts over people and doesn't listen and has their point to make and, and it makes it a real pleasure i learned so much from the people i'm with and i'm just so thrilled that you are modeling how far can they go in their thinking before i interrupt and think for them and then how much further than that can they go in their thinking and then oh pain of all pains how much further than that can they go and uh, it's just a joy to hear that, Dom. Dom, moving from EQ, which is around interpersonal, to, to more cultural uh, intelligence question. It's uh, only come out of Harvard. People have been talking about it for a while, but it's not really been well secret. I got rid of IQ. I sort of dropped that. Lee and I have dropped that from the, the compass because we go, yeah, IQ, yeah, yeah, fine. It's 6% of what helps people perform. But I think these days people do want diversity, equality, and inclusion. And equality is part of the thinking environment that you've read about in Nancy Klein's work. What have you learned about being uh, culturally intelligent to read different environments with different people who are very different from you? And what tip would you pass on? I think, I think it's so important. It's so important that I come from a world that reflects my upbringing, my education, uh, the people I've grown accustomed to, the people I'm comfortable with, and I make assumptions 
like we all do, I make assumptions when I'm with people whose background, whose upbringing, whose schooling, whose language, whose experiences aren't ones that I can immediately relate to. And so I think for me, it's about catching that feeling of, oh, I don't quite understand. I can't connect as quickly as I want to because I like to connect with people straight away. And that's not to say you can't connect with people whose language you don't share. <laughs> you know, many times you've been traveling around the world and you bump into somebody and you feel like you're instant friends. So it's not that. But I think it's just that sensitivity around if I truly respect them as an individual, then I need to be really mindful about the language I use, being respectful of their custom, their language, their confidence, their ability to describe things. And actually not interrupting is really, really important. Somebody who might have a speech impediment, somebody who might have that flight or fight moment and actually get very stressed when they're asked a direct question, who don't like to say things in public, who find it embarrassing to be given recognition in front of a group. And so I just think, you know, out of respect for other people, understanding those cultural differences. And it reminds me, when I was a student, I went to uh, Groningen in North Holland for a semester in my second year, Groningen. And I remember they took us on this cultural awareness program for three days. And they kept on saying, what is culture to you? And I didn't understand the term because I'd always been in my culture. So this idea of what is culture felt like an alien concept. And you'd hear the French and the Italians and the Chinese and the Arubans and everyone was kind of describing the food that they eat or the family scenarios. But by the time I left Holland, I had a real deep appreciation for people from different parts of the world and their experiences and their lived experiences are theirs and theirs alone. And therefore, how dare I make an assumption as to the value of that or the yeah. intelligence of somebody or their... And, and I, was, I was talking to somebody recently, actually, Marjorie Thompson, who gave me my first leg up, as it were, when I left university. And she's a Californian. She'd run C&D and the Royal College of Nursing and all that kind of stuff. And she ended up in Saatchi and Saatchi, which is a very strange place for this, you know, agitator and activist to end up. Marjorie had this amazing skill to talk about things that were intelligent, maybe history and politics, but quickly establish whether or not you knew the people that, or the terms of reference. And if you didn't, rather than making you feel silly, would just add a little bit of context to invite you into the conversation. And I think that is a real art to do. Mm -hmm. Rather than, and I, you said it to me, Jonathan, and it's stuck with me ever since, I think I used to come into the room and immediately assess how intelligent I thought the other person was. And if I perceived them to be more intelligent than me, I started to compete to demonstrate to them I was worthy of debate. And you gave me the confidence to go, what makes you assume that people want to hear what you've got to say? It was an interesting conversation. And that rocked me back on my heels because I was like no one's ever asked me that question before but it came from a good place and it enabled me to go why are you competing why are you having to prove what if you assume that people already 
think that you're intelligent or worthy of conversation or and I, and I just think that's a really, really important moment that allow me just to just to chill out, actually. So I know I've strayed away from cultural, but I think I think just appreciating people and I love I love meeting people and living in Bradford. I mean, we live in the best city in the world. We are literally the center of the universe. We have such a diverse population. We've got one of the youngest populations in the UK, very entrepreneurial, you know, lots of immigration over 180 years from Germany, from the Far East, from Russia, from Eastern Europe, obviously from, you know, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India. And it's just to me, fascinating fascinating place to be because actually what unites people in Bradford is a steeliness, a determination, a sense of community, a sense of family, a sense of no one else is going to come in and wave the magic wand. So we'll just do it ourselves and a pride and, and almost a bit of a, don't tell anyone how good it really is. Let them throw their rocks and let them always go back to the riots of 1990 or whatever. Live in the past if you want. Don't tell them. It's like our little secret. And I really love that. You know, I've got Irish parents. I was brought up in Reading. My parents are from opposing sides of the of the divide, as it were, in, in Belfast, if you like. And so, you know, I get that there can often be this sort of tribalism or mm. almost football team mentality. Which school did you go to? Have you got the ring on your little finger? And I remember being at Saatchi's and, and, and Marjorie introducing me to some of the senior leadership team and going, come and meet Dominic. He went to a comprehensive school and I didn't get the joke. It, it didn't mean anything to me that people hadn't been to a comprehensive school. And actually the school I went to in Reading was considered to be quite a posh comprehensive. So I thought, you know, normally I was the one sort of feeling a bit hoity-toity. But that, again, you know, you look back on those moments and you go, you know, that our world has shifted so much in 25 years, I think. So I, I, I look forward to my kids coming out of this city that we've grown up in, who've been to a Catholic school, funny enough, but having a kind of worldview, being world citizens who happen to live in a particular location. Yeah. And I just want to appreciate how you're showing up on this podcast. I, I love the energy. I love also that you've got this ability to slow yourself down and just be in the moment and pause and let me speak. Uh, but yet there's a real passion and an energy. I think you've really found something. There's quite a inner vein there, which I really admire and respect. So I just want to acknowledge that publicly just to a few thousand people around the world. Um, <laughs> resilience. RQ, uh, a story of how you coped with adversity, setbacks, disappointments, and what would be your tip to those listening, Don? I was thinking about this and I was wondering, you know, which of my many mistakes do I want to talk about? And actually, I'm going to go to one that's more recent. So I think in August last year, the you know, pandemic, I had one of those wobbles that I thought, I'm not happy. I could hear the voice in my head saying, you're not happy, you're not very good, you're not doing what you want to do. And I caught it and I was aware of it and I started to articulate it. And actually one of the you know, wellness tools that I use is to write about things and I don't mind doing that in public. 
But I remember somebody saying to me a few years ago, oh, careful, Dom, you know, people won't want to work with you if they, you know, more or less if you've damaged goods or if you're a bit too hard on the sleeve or if you're a bit too open about your mental health. So I even broached that in the piece that I wrote. But for me, it was important. And it's partly because it made me feel better. I'd already got to the point where I realized I wasn't in a good place and I needed to write about it. But also it was for others to go, gosh, I would never have thought that of you. You know, I look at your LinkedIn and your social media and your VP marketing at this legal tech thing and your blogging and your chairman at this thing and blah, blah, blah. So it's very easy for the outside world to look at this kind of slice of your life and go, you know, you've got everything. You've got everything you could have wanted. I then had to give myself permission. And I gave myself permission to have a career break this year. And even once I'd made that decision, I realized that the, the hole that I felt I was in, I started to arrest back control because then it was like, actually, I only need to get through to April. I can do that. I can get through to April. And then I started to flip the assumption. And it was Nancy Klein's book, actually, that helped me do it. I was going, what am I assuming? I'm assuming that people don't value what I do. I'm assuming that they think, because I haven't spoken to them very often this week or last week, that they must be assuming I'm sat here twiddling my thumbs. What if I assume they thought I was so busy? That's why I've not been in touch. So I flipped some of these assumptions around and I kind of self-coached myself and said, what would you do differently now then if, if you assume the positive? And immediately things began to lift and shift. And I thought, well, do you know what I would do? I'd sign up to do that course I've been thinking about doing. I'd start exercising again and doing a bit more of that. I'd start not worrying if I've done my best work before midday, then go for a walk or go and do nine holes of golf in the afternoon. Why are you feeling like you're on this kind of, you know, you have to perform or you have to work in the way that other people work effectively. And so it was really interesting. And I think just giving myself that permission started to allow me to recover again. And actually, it's not a career break I'm taking. It's now, in my head, a career springboard. I'm investing in my own development. I'm going back to college. I'm allowing myself to reach out again and talk to people that I wouldn't have talked to. We're having this podcast. We're reconnecting. And, of course, when you get into that mindset, then things open up, don't they? So I think I just had the, the blinkers had kind of come down. Inevitably, pandemic, working from home, every day was the same day blah, blah, blah. But it was more than that. I think I'd allowed my work to become a day job. And I'd forgotten. And I know it's a sort of a, an old cliche, but my dad did say something powerful to me when I was 14. And I remember it clearly, because I was like, he was such a workaholic, and he, he really enjoyed what he did. But he was always working. And I couldn't understand why. And he says, Yeah, but Dominic, if you find a job you love, you know, you'll never work another day. I thought my dad is very wise, he's a very wise man. And then when he was having his, uh, his retirement um, do at Queen's University, and it's like, it, it was like walking into Hogwarts, you know, very old fashioned kind of wood paneled hall. And I was able to do a speech. And I remember saying to all of these academics with their beards, and I'm saying, when I was growing up, I felt that anyone with a beard was clever because all the people that my dad's work had long beards. So I assumed they were all really clever. And he was on a, a trip to China and he was 
absolutely shattered because his hosts were being very, very hospitable, but they were taking him up and down mountains and going to see the home of Confucius and all this kind of stuff. And as he was telling me this story, I was Googling Confucius and up popped this quote. If you find a job you love, you'll never work another day in your life. And I thought, so here's the man who's told everyone in my university, since my university days, my son had done a degree in bullshit because I did a degree in PR. And I thought, who was the bigger bullshitter? All these years, I thought you were this, you know, sage, this wide old sage, and you'd stolen it from Confucius. But it was true. And, and I know it's a cliche, but I think, and the way I define it now is, when am I in my element? And if I can be in my element most of the time through the work that I do, that I can then afford to live as I choose to live, there are things that I can lend my hand to. And it's inevitable that sometimes you have to do those things too in order to pay the bills. So it's not the things I'm passionate about, but there are things that I'm very competent at and I'm really good at. And I sometimes do those too. Yeah, lovely. I love it. And it, it fits completely with that. If you, if you find a job you really love, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, and the other one is you're to stop doing less and you're to get doing list. I get to talk to fascinating people like you, Dom. I, I, I get to do it. And I choose to stop doing certain things. I had a little interaction with someone who wanted me to talk to someone. Uh, it was pro bono. and I really can't afford to do too much. I'm doing so much for the charity. And I said, actually, I choose not to. Oh, that was bad. You should have said yes. And I thought, no, I've, I've actually got to learn to say no to some things. Because if you're saying yes to everything, I can't say yes to my wife or walking Archie or whatever it might be, or my health or my mental health or sleep, sufficient sleep, because we could just get overwhelmed. Um, last couple before we talk about teams and things like that. Um, a, a quick tip on brand, I know it's been your whole life, but, but brand reputation, image impact. How do you get 360 feedback on yourself? And what have you learned from 360 that you've had over the years? Increasingly difficult when you work for yourself and you're a consultant, because that is a different dynamic with your customer. Right, with the people that are employing you. But it didn't stop me seeking it out. So a couple of years ago, I actually created a survey monkey, which was akin to the kind of 360 feedback that we used to do an awful lot of at Asda. And, and I think one of the things that was a real privilege being a, a big company like Asda that valued development, valued you know, personal development, and gave you the ability to, I think, spend 20% of your time learning about yourself now, most of that is on the job, right? 80% of learning at Asda was on the job. But that meant there was, you know, there were an hour or two a week where you really ought to be not at your desk and using that development time, you know, watching a TED talk, being coached, mentoring others, and actually coaching others. I find every time I have a conversation with somebody else and they tell me where they're at, it reaffirms and reinforms me. Brilliant learning experience. So I think, you know, there's some of that. So how I get feedback, I've had to learn not to dismiss the feedback that I've heard before. And I think the way that I do that now is when people give me the feedback and it sounds familiar and they evidence it and it's true and, and, and they value that about how I am, I have to remind myself I'm the 1% of people who can do that well and do it intuitively. And it's not effort to do it because it comes natural and I'm good at it and I enjoy it and I don't have to prepare in the same way that other people prepare. And the reason they value it is because that's something they would find very hard to do. You know, preparing for an interview like this, some people would find really, really taxing and they would do their homework and they'd write their answers down and then memorize their answers. And so once you realize that you're the 1% of people who do that well, 
then you value it in yourself. So I think that's interesting. Feedback can be similar and familiar, but it isn't any less revealing if you allow it to be. Um, I'm not afraid to ask for feedback. And actually, one of the things I know I need in order to feel rewarded, in order to feel motivated, is I need to get feedback from people I respect. And, and so I have to seek it out occasionally because it's not always forthcoming. And as long as you signpost that you're interested to know their view, then I think that's a valuable thing to do. And often in return, they want feedback on themselves. And if it's somebody who's senior or somebody that's in a position of you know, power or leadership, you know, I remember Judith saying to me, the higher you go up in an organization, <laughs> the less compliments you get because people mm. don't feel they can. So when you do make the effort of leading with a compliment and appreciating something about the way that they behave or the something that they've done, actually, more often than not, they're really genuinely pleased to hear it. So I, I try to make sure that when I'm asking for feedback, I'm not, I'm able to do that in a way that it has equality, you know, that there is an opportunity to, to be feeding back to them and, and asking for it in return. But I think it is harder. It's harder when you're not in an organisation. Yeah, no, you just may realise, I think I'm going to drop an email to a couple of the leaders I've worked with and just say, I don't get 360 either, really, apart from appreciation at the end. You know, what's, what's one thing that I, as a leadership coach, do really well? What would be one thing I could do even better if I was to do it? And what's the unique thing that you come to me for that you don't go to anybody else for, that you, you want some wisdom or whatever it is. I think that's really good. And then to offer them happy to reciprocate with the, with the response if you want it. Um, legacy, uh, what would you like your legacy to be? I, this is the toughest question for me. I think when I was younger, if I'm honest, I wanted to be undeniably world-class at something. I just wasn't sure what the something was. And I think I sort of stumbled around a, a while and then I thought, oh, when I found social media, I thought, that's the thing. Suddenly I'm one of the best people at this thing. And then I realized that it was just a transient moment in, you know, social media wasn't a thing, now it's a thing, now it's everywhere. Um, so what, what's my legacy? I mean, I, th I suppose it leads on to the question about reputation. You know, I, I want to leave behind, I guess, an imprint of how I behaved and how I treated other people. You know, that old adage that people forget what you say, but they remember how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. And I want that to be a positive, infectious thing, that how I made them feel, those little moments, those stories, those anecdotes of a conversation that we had together, sometimes a conversation that I don't recall, that that then has onward value that they're able to pass that on and so i think back to the conversations that you and i have had together i think back to conversations of various leaders various people that i've had the pleasure of working with or working alongside or seeing present and there's always certain little moments that stick in my mind and they're the stories that i tell when i'm helping somebody who might be in a bit of a sticky situation and they and they're just searching for something and i go, okay, I'm hearing that. Let me just tell you this story. And you see it just helps shine a little bit of light into a dark corner and they go, I can relate to that. So I, I think my legacy, I hope, will be one of people remembering some of those stories and how I made them feel. For me, that is achievement. And, and I think about it now with the kids in a different way. You know, occasionally go get the kids to come out for a walk, which is always a struggle. 
and I've been applying this time to think and I've been asking them open questions and asking them again, what else, what else do you think? And it was so interesting that my youngest said to me the next night, can we go for another walk? Oh yeah, sure. And she wanted to go on the same journey that we've been on before because she wanted to talk about her thing. <laughs> That's so good. That's it. And, and the thing that I find quite profound, it's interesting um, when you ask someone what else is the brain goes searching for other things. And the thing that's so powerful is when I ask someone, and it's, you can ask them, what more do you think or feel or want to say? Because as you say, people forget what you say, they forget what you do, but they never forget how you make them feel. So what more, you could even just say it's that, what more? And the brain goes looking like a little rabbit round the warren going, there must be something else because he's asked me what more. Yeah. And, and it finds these things that are buried deep under sofas behind where the pennies are at the back of the sofa. No one's looked at it for years and it up it pops and you just stay quiet and you go, but I'm not adding enough value. I need to be throwing ideas in. And you go, no, shut the F up yeah. and really be there for them. Really interested, listening to ignite, not listening to respond. Wasn't that saying you told me in Asda, people don't listen, they just reload. <laughs> and uh, last two, last three questions. Um, so many things we could have talked about. Executive teams, when you've been in a great high-performing team, what were two or three of the ingredients and what was part of what made a team toxic? Um, so the great thing, I think high-performance teams, and I think back to Asda particularly, Asda at its best. Asda had a very strong culture, probably still does, but it was values-driven. And somebody who was my boss said to me, as organizations grow and become more complex and bigger, they have to be values-driven. It can't be rules-based because one, people don't remember all the rules, but if they believe in the values, and they, they can't be just words on a poster, they have to believe in those values, then it guides their behavior. And also it allows them to call out bad behavior. It allows them to say in a meeting, whoa, 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 hang on. You might be more senior than me, but what you've just described as the, what we're going to do, that's not how we do things around here. And somebody said to me last week, interestingly, another ex-ASDA guy said to me, culture happens to organizations whether they want it to or not. It's a combination of people's behavior and what they bring to the table. Either you help reinforce positive culture and you drive that forward in a positive way and you lead that culture and you show it through your actions consistently every day, or bad culture will become part of how you do things. And I've seen bad culture where it's just, people don't appreciate the amount of effort that goes into making things work successfully. And, you know, I was listening to a lawyer on a podcast the other day, really interesting actually, because he said it's his most important job as the leader of a law firm. The most important job is managing the values and the culture of the organization. I think mm. that's fascinating. I, I so agree. And there's a tech company where the CEO refuses to, to do value space work. Oh, it's rubbish, all this stuff. And I, I don't even agree with diversity, equality, inclusion. I don't want to call it inclusion. Let's, let's just call it engagement. You go, no, no this, is, this is fundamental. What's your foundational values? Because when you haven't got a true north, any, any road will take you there, any direction. And so, as you say, a culture emerges like weeds growing on your garden because you haven't tended to it and you haven't 
led by example, where a leader goes, and I've seen this too, where he goes, oh, you're the, you're the HR director or the CPO. You, you organize the, the executive team offsite. I, I'll, I'll turn up if I can. No, you've got to be the one who drives the whole thing. They're looking at you. They're learning you, not what you say or the rhetoric. What are they actually seeing you behave? And some of it's shocking, ah, shocking, which is why my wife's writing a book on inspired leadership and the toxic turnaround, because some, some are quite toxic. Yeah. Last two, very briefly, and our, our um, uh, lovely couple of just quick fire ones on this, if you would, um, Dom. Favorite book? What would your favorite book be that you recommend to listeners? Always, 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 How to Win Friends and Influence People, because oh. It's timeless. And I used it as a manual to help me overcome relationships with people. And then I realized that some of those relationships, I was bringing, if you like, my ghost to the table. Mm -hmm. So I was taking out of this relationship that they were out to get me. Why are they out to get me? I'm only trying to help. I'm a nice person. I'm, you know, I'm values based. And I found a way of overcoming that. And there was one particular chapter where there was a guy that we just didn't get on and we were fucking like this together, you know, colleagues around the management team and it just wasn't working. And I was trying everything. And I found something about him that I really respected. And I really, really valued. And it was his ability to do work. He was never off. He was always, I don't know where he was like Margaret Thatcher, never needed to sleep. And so I had to go to his desk and he had to show me something on his computer. And I just paused before he did. And I said, can I just say something? I don't know where you get your energy from. It's like staggering to me. I leave here and I go home and I barely talk to anybody. I, you know, I just have to watch terrible TV just to sort of slowly massage my brain. And he said, oh, it's funny you should say that. My wife says the same. It doesn't feel like work to me. I have to force myself to go to sleep at midnight, but I could stay up till four in the morning. And that was the key. That bit of humanity was the key. And we walked together to a meeting room and we spent two hours talking about our shared line manager and how he didn't know how to make him feel like he was doing a good job. He felt like he wasn't valued. Wow. And it was just one of those moments I thought, wow, there's a book written 85 years ago with old examples in there, modernized language a little bit, but it's profound and it's true because it's humans. It's how do humans behave? How do you get the best out of other people? And how do you walk into a room assuming they know something you don't? So I just always, always, always say to people, if you've not read it, read it. If you've read it before, read it again. Brilliant. And we're now going to do your top tip. Now, you may have another top tip, but I think your top tip should be around this because I think it's such a good book. It was the very first book I ever read. So if you just do your introduction, Dom, and share a couple of minutes of your top tip and why it's important, why people would find it useful. Really over to you. Hi, my name is Dom Birch. I'm a strategic communications professional, I guess. My top tip for anyone listening and watching this podcast would be Dust Off, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. The book was written around 90 years ago. It's very, very easy to read, but the messages and the moral in it is profound. It teaches you through stories how a president of the United States was absolutely humbled by a small boy writing to him and telling him about why he valued the speech that he had made and was invited to the White House. So you understand that everybody has an ego. You also understand how to treat somebody who you're not getting on with. I learned a really profound lesson about somebody who I was just, you know, couldn't see eye to eye with. 
and I had to find something in my enemy, is the words they use, which is pretty, you know, descriptive language, something in my enemy that I valued and respected. I didn't need to like them necessarily as a person, but something I respected. And I found that thing and I told them and it came from a position of honesty and it completely melted the icy relationship we had. And it gave me the confidence that this is a book that is just true. It understands how people tick and it understands how you as a human can use some of these skills, some of these tips, some of these practical stories, and you can put them into practice immediately. And you see the fruits of that almost immediately too. So I always, always, always come back to that book. I just think it's fascinating. It's really interesting and it works. Brilliant. Dom, it's been a real pleasure having you in the series. Stay on, but thank you very much for being on the Inspiring Leadership Show. Thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.